0: And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, folks, bow with me and let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us. Father, in spite of the fact that our sins deserve nothing but your utter silence and banishment of your presence. Father, we know that you have summoned us by your Spirit who dwells within us and you have brought us here to this place for the sole purpose of being informed, being inspired, being empowered by your Word. And we ask that you would now speak to us, meet us where we are, in our struggles, in our sorrows, in our fears, lift us up and guide us to the hope that we have in your Son. Father, we pray that You will now speak to us in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, most of you in here by now know that I recently became a father. Yes, I became a father for the fifth time, and if by chance this is your first Sunday here, perfect, because now it gives me justification to show you what I'm about to show you, a picture of my newest edition. There he is. Aw, that's right. Wait, I don't hear it. Aw, yeah. This is my beloved Joey. This is Josiah. I literally took this picture minutes after he came out of his mother. No joke, okay? And if you carefully study this picture, you can easily discern that he was born where you would assume he was, which was a hospital. You can see, you know, that... Towel that all hospitals give. You can make out that little suction bulb that all hospitals use to suck out the mucus and the blood and all that yucky stuff. And then, of course, the standardized hospital baby cap on his beautiful head. Yes, indeed, my beautiful Josiah was born at L.I.J. Hospital. Shout out to L.I.J. Thank you so much for making us feel so good, right? And I wouldn't have it any other way, right? He was born in the hospital. Why? Well, if you talk to my wife, Sarah, she will tell you that the thing that terrifies me the most about having a child is not raising the child. It's not caring for the child. No, believe it or not, the thing that terrorizes me the most when it comes to having a baby is making sure the baby's mom is in the hospital so that the child will be delivered at the hospital. I'm not kidding. That's the thing that terrorizes me the most every time my wife, Sarah, has told me we're pregnant and it's happened a lot. Okay, Right? She would say, we're pregnant. The first thought in my mind is, oh my gosh, where are we going to make room for this child? It isn't how am I going to pay for this child. It's how I'm going to make sure that we get to the hospital in time. Because my greatest nightmare, my greatest fear is... We're on the highway trying to get to the hospital because my wife is in labor, but we hit heavy traffic and I am forced to deliver my own child. I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do? How am I going to be? How am I going to deliver this child? How am I going to cut the umbilical cord, whatever it's called? And the placenta, my goodness, what am I going to do with the placenta? (laughs) You're probably thinking to yourself, man, Pastor John, you're a freak. (laughs) Well, maybe so, but I am a freak that loves my children very, very much And I will do all I can in all my power to make sure that they are born in a safe and sterile environment. And because that is so, you can understand how off-putting I am when I read this passage and I consider the circumstances of the birth of Jesus. As our passage tells us, Jesus was born in a very turbulent, unsafe, political, chaotic time. Right? Just to give you a background of what's going on here, Israel is currently occupied by a foreign nation, the Roman Empire. Okay, The Roman Empire has conquered them, meaning there is a foreign nation currently occupying their homeland that is uninvited and unwelcome to where it manifests in things like the decree we just read in verse 1, where the Roman Emperor himself, Caesar Augustus, demanded every individual male person within his empire right go and get registered. Registered for what? Registered so that he can tax people, so that he can make people pay for what he calls the Pax Romana. And later on in the message, I'm going to explain what this Pax Romana is, okay? But here's the issue. Caesar is imposing himself on the Israelites, therefore on Jesus' parents, his mom and his adopted father, right? And to make matters worse, Caesar is demanding not only that every individual male register, but they register in their hometown. Practically speaking, that means Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, is forced to take his very pregnant wife Mary away from her home in Nazareth and trek over 90 miles across the unwelcoming desert until they finally reach his hometown, Nazareth, within the city of David. Clearly, this is not an ideal situation for a baby to be born. And yet, when we read what the Apostle Paul says about this incident in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, we are utterly astounded. Listen to what he says there. He says this, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. When the right time came, God sent his son, What in the world are you saying, Paul? And not only Paul, remember, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he's really speaking on behalf of God. So it's really God saying this, and God is saying, yes, at the right time, at the right moment, I sent my son Jesus, my eternal son, to become Jesus at this time that he was born. I don't know about you, but if I was God, I would not do what he did and therefore later call it the right time. But then again, I'm not God. Like you, I'm just a creature of God. who was created for the sole purpose to know God, to know more about him. And so let's do that now as we continue our Advent Sermon series entitled The Christmas Tour. And the whole purpose of this series is to look at key places that have been marked by the presence of Jesus, specifically surrounding his birth and immediately following. And today, we're going to take a look at the very first place where the baby Jesus was laid, a little thing called a manger. And as we study the significance of the manger within the Christmas story, not only will we learn more about the significance of Christmas, but we will understand more about the God of Christmas and why he considered this time to be the time in which his son will be born into history so that he could be the savior of the world. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, what the manger says about the world. Number two, what the manger says about you. And finally, what the manger says about Jesus. What the manger says about the world, about you, and about Jesus. Okay? Let's begin. What the manger says about the world. Read again with me verse one of our passage where it says the following, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, as I briefly mentioned a moment ago, Caesar Augustus was the reigning Roman emperor during the time of Jesus's birth. And whenever there is any name dropping, as we have just seen Luke do, we ask the question, who exactly was this Caesar Augustus? What kind of person was he seen in the eyes of others? Well, consider this quote from a man who lived not only during the time of Caesar Augustus, but also under the reign of Caesar Augustus. This is a quote from a Jew, a philosopher Jew, by the name of Philo of Alexandria. Listen to how he perceived this man known as Caesar Augustus he writes this quote he was the first and the greatest benefactor in that he displaced the rule of many and committed the ship of the commonwealth to be steered by a single pilot that is himself a marvelous master of the science of government the whole habitable world voted him no less than celestial honors these are so well attested by temples gateways vestibules and porticos they knew his carefulness and that he showed it in maintaining firmly the native customs of each particular nation no less than of the romans and that he received his honors not for destroying the institutions of some nations in self-exaltation, but in accordance with the magnitude of so mighty a sovereignty, whose prestige was bound to be enhanced by such tributes. Wow. Looks like we've found someone who Donald Trump could look to as a role model, because as it turns out, this Caesar Augustus was well-loved, greatly respected by many within those that he ruled over. And it makes sense. Because as historians tell us, this particular Roman emperor is considered by many as the main architect, the political architect, responsible for the Pax Romana, that thing that I mentioned a moment ago. And so what exactly is this thing called the Pax Romana? Any classical students in here? Anyone who studied New Testament history? Anyone? Anyone? The Pax Romana. 200 years of unrivaled peace, right? Military peace, international peace, economic peace, That was mainly because of this guy here, right? And if you look at that quote that I just put up, put it back up there for just a moment, and you consider how he is being described, you can easily understand how he was so successful and how he was so respected. Because as it says in the middle of it, quote, he maintained firmly the native customs of each particular nation, no less than of the Romans. Turns out, Caesar Augustus was perceived by many as a very tolerant man. This man was a very, very tolerant Roman emperor, so much so that thousands upon thousands would say he was the greatest Roman emperor that ever existed in the history of Rome, right? And of course, not much has changed today because in our day and age, tolerance is highly esteemed in our culture. In fact, tolerance is considered as the guiding principle in determining whether or not someone is a good guy or a bad guy, Right? Because this is how it goes. If you're a very tolerant person, then you're a good guy. You're one of those good guys. You're the one that everyone should love, everyone should support. But if you're intolerant, oh, you're narrow. You're a bigot. You're wicked. You're evil, right? You are one of the bad guys. Yes, intolerant means you are an evil, bad person. Shame on you. But I wonder, is it really that simple? The reason why I ask that is because look again at the first half of verse 1. Right? the second half of verse 1, and what it says, what Caesar Augustus did. What did he do? He demanded that the whole world, that is those under his empire, which pretty much encapsulated the whole known world at the time, he demanded that everyone go back to their hometown and be registered. In other English translations, that word is sometimes used instead for census. Now, what is a census? A census is a massive tax. Again, it's where he registers everyone so that he could tax other people. He could tax the whole people. Again, why did he want to tax the whole people? So that he could fund this thing known as the Pax Romana, peace. Oh, didn't you know? Peace ain't cheap, right? How else was he going to pay the foot soldiers, the cohorts, the centurions, the legionnaires, the Praetorian guards, right? See, in the ancient world, peace was a violent business. And it still is a violent violent business in other parts of the world of the world today see violence is required in order to have worldly peace in order to get it established and furthermore more violence is required in order to protect that peace that was established you guys know that word right protection as in like when crooked cops or thug gangs provide quote-unquote protection for terrified business owners so long as they pay their protection fee so there could be peace in the neighborhood you see Life teaches us there's always two sides to a story, especially when it comes to people who make it into history books. For some people, Caesar Augustus was this great political figure who was a great champion of tolerance for everybody. But then there for other people, Caesar Augustus was a terrifying figure that you better not cross. Otherwise, some very out-of-character people would come chasing after you, collecting on his behalf. Case in point, Joseph, the husband of the very pregnant Mary, why in the world would Joseph risk the life of his wife and her child if Caesar Augustus was this great, tolerant, kind, gregarious person? The answer? He wouldn't. You see, for Joseph and Mary, they both knew that as tolerant as Caesar was, he would not have tolerated them not obeying this decree that he gave away. Right? And it was because of this historical situational context God said in heaven, Now. Now is the time for my eternal Son to come into the world as Jesus. Let me explain. The Bible teaches us that God is the greatest history teacher ever. Why? Because unlike those boring history teachers that we grew up with who were very limited in just teaching us the specific external events of society, God is able to take history and teach us about the human universal internal conditions of the human heart. And this passage is no different, you see? Because here in this narrative that chronicles the Christmas story, God is using the historical moments of this particular time to convey one main idea about the world we live in. And you know what that idea is? It's simply this. This world will not tolerate Jesus. Let me say that again. This world will not tolerate Jesus. And because he will never be tolerated, he will never be welcome. Even at a time of such great peace like the Pax Romana, even when it's ruled by someone who's considered the most tolerant person on the earth, even if he came in the most tolerable form ever, a human being could ever come in. A helpless, cute, innocent person baby the fact that the baby jesus had nowhere to lay his freshly birthed head except in a disgusting manger is the world's way of telling god we will not accept we will not tolerate your jesus now the natural question that arises from this is why why would a world that claims to value tolerance so much not be so towards jesus I recently came across a quote by a main man. Excuse me. oh nervous. I don't know why, but a man by the name of Thomas S. Hemlock, or excuse me, Thomas A. Hemlock. You're thinking yourself, well, who's Thomas A. Hemlock? Well, at one point in his life, he was the vice president, executive vice president of the National Lambda Chi Alpha fraternity. Now you're like, wait a minute, PJ, are you about to quote a frat boy? Yeah, I am. Because as you'll see in just a moment, what he says about the assumptions that the world carries when it comes to this value of tolerance that they have so much hits the nail on the head. Listen to what he says. The definition of tolerance is that every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyles, and perception of truth claims are equal. There is no hierarchy of truth. Your beliefs and my beliefs are equal and all truth is relative. Take a mental note and highlight that last phrase that he says there all truth is relative this is the assumption that fuels the value that our culture has when it comes to this idea of tolerance and basically what it means is this what's true for you isn't true for me and what's true for me doesn't have to be true for you and so long as we agree that this is true then I will tolerate you. Then I will like you. Then I will befriend you. Then I will recognize you as a good God. Do you kind of see the irony of that? There's no truth except the truth that there is no truth, right? You guys get the irony behind that statement, right? This is the underlying assumption of our world's conception of tolerance and why it values it so much because there is no such thing as truth with a capital T. So imagine, how a person who thinks this way is going to react when they hear later on a grown-up Jesus saying this about himself in John's Gospel in the 14th chapter, starting in verse 6, we read, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. What, Jesus? Excuse me? Did you just claim there is such a thing as the truth? And furthermore, are you saying that you are the truth? How intolerant of you. I will not tolerate you, Jesus. What do you think about that? You know what Jesus is going to say? He's going to say, fine. You don't have to tolerate me. Don't tolerate me. But just know this. By not tolerating me, you're going to end up not tolerating yourself. What? Yeah. What is this mental jujitsu you're doing, Jesus? No, it's true. Jesus is going to show us in just a moment. If you don't tolerate him, you end up not tolerating yourself. How? How? Let me go to my next point to explain what the manger says about you. Now, being that we are this far into Christmas, I'm sure by now, you've either seen a picture or an image that tries to capture what our text is describing here. Maybe it was because of a Christmas card that you opened that was mailed to you. Or maybe you drove by a little church that had large figurines depicting the scene like the one on the screen, right? This is famously known as a nativity scene the nativity scene, and I believe is because of images like this that has caused billions of people today to be so misguided, including many, many Christians. Here's why. Take a closer look at this picture. What do you see? The baby Jesus doing he's in a small wooden stable like structure surrounded by animals right cute little animals eating hay hanging out you know like you would do if you went to a local farm or you went to an old you know zoo in some small town somewhere in 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 middle america right now let's go back to the text go back to the text for just a moment where in these verses do you read anywhere about anything being remotely about wooden structures, a stable, anything that looks anything like what we just saw, right? It's not there. It's not there. In fact, early historical sources tell us that Jesus was actually born in a cave. That's what the early historical sources tell us, which is why in a recent movie adaptation on the birth of Jesus called The Nativity Story, it depicts the nativity scene like this inside of a cave so here's the question if the earliest historical sources tell us that Jesus was born in a cave why then today do we see pictures of the nativity story and the nativity scene excuse me of Jesus being in something like a wooden shed stable ranch whatever why the answer it's because of the word of the day the word of the day What is this, Sesame Street? No, you know what I mean. The word of the day, the main word of today's message, the manger. Verse 7, what is a manger? Well, I'll tell you what a manger is not. A manger is not a wooden structure, okay? I was a youth pastor for many years, and I cannot tell you how many times so many youth group students would tell me, yeah, Jesus, I drove by, you know, a manger. I was like, you drove by a manger? Yeah, you know, the wooden shed. I was like, that ain't a manger, man. So they're so used to just reading the Bible story, and they, they just assume, and they see those pictures. They make this correlation. Oh, yeah, a manger is like a little stable. That No, that's not a manger. Dummy? That's what I'm thinking in my head. Do you know what a manger is? This is a manger, right? It's a wooden trough that holds food, specifically for animals, right? Whether it be hay, wild oats, whether it be slop for pigs, whether it be water for them to drink out of, right? This is a dish tray for animals. This is the dinner plate of an animal. This is what Jesus lay in, right? It's a, it's basically a, a, a tray for food for animals to eat out of, right? And it's because of this medieval artists started thinking, oh, if there's a manger, there must be animals, right? And if there must be animals, there must be like little, you know, slots for them to sit into, like a stable. No, no. The text only says that Jesus was born in a manger. He was laid in a manger. He was laid on a dinner plate for ponies, for sheep. Right Now, just to remind you, Christian, the Bible teaches us that our God is a sovereign God. And what that basically means is that he's in full control of what everything happens in history. He's proactively involved to where nothing happens by accident, nothing happens by coincidence, which means God the Father intentionally, purposefully orchestrated the Christmas event so that his son would end up on a dinner plate for animals. Here's the question, why? Why? Well, let's think about it, okay? What is one of the central messages of the Christmas story? One of the central messages of the Christmas story is that God, Jesus, the Son, right, came down to the world. Why? Because the world would never want to go up to him. Because again, the world cannot tolerate Jesus, Ever. Okay? And by coming down to us the way that he did to where the first physical contact of the world that he had was on an object that animals ate out of, that's God symbolically telling us that when you don't tolerate Jesus, you end up like an animal. Specifically, you end up eating like an animal. And you're like, "Huh? Speak for yourself, PJ. I don't eat like an animal. I mean, I eat animals, but I don't eat like them. I don't eat hay. I don't eat slop." You know, I don't eat those rock-hard pebble chunks that I give to my dog to eat, you know. I don't know what you're talking about. To which I would reply, yes, you don't know what I'm talking about. Because I'm not saying that you eat the same kinds of food that animal eats. Rather, what I am saying is that you have the same mindset that animal has when it comes to their hunger. Stay with me for just a moment. When an animal is hungry, what are they hungry for? When an animal is hungry, what are they hungry for? Are they hungry for a long-term committed monogamous relationship? Are they hungry for a corner office in the city somewhere? Are they hungry for a prestigious <coughs> university plaque from a prestigious institution of learning? No! When an animal is hungry, it's hungry for just one thing. When an animal is getting hungry, it's thinking just one thing. What am I hungry for? Food! Water! That's all it cares about, right? Right? When it comes to their hunger, animals are very one-dimensional, right? And that's essentially what I am saying. Oh, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that we only hunger for food, but what I am saying is that we are one-dimensional like animals when it comes to how we understand our hunger, because we believe that the things that we are hungry for are only found in this one dimension we are currently living in. This material dimension that you can see, touch, hear, smell, and yes, of course, taste. You see, even though we get hungry for a variety of different things. Food, relationships, success. Giving the impression that we're so multidimensional in the things that we crave. In reality, that's simply not true because the truth of the matter is for all the different things that we are hungry for they all carry one assumption the only thing I'm hungry for is found in this dimension of space and time which further assumes that there is no other dimension out there in reality that I would ever be hungry for that's the assumption that's one dimensional hunger and do you know what eventually happens when you hold on to this belief you carry this assumption for a long period of time You know what happens? You become intolerant of that belief. You become intolerant of that belief. What's the standard definition of intolerance? Unacceptable, right? The longer you hold on to this belief that the only thing you could ever be hungry for, meaning that satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction could be found somewhere in this space-time realm, this space-time dimension you live in, eventually you will get fed up and you will not tolerate it, you will not believe it anymore, you will not accept it anymore. Why? Because at some point, you will have had your fill of the world and you'll come to discover you are still hungry. In his critically acclaimed book, Henderson, the Rain King, author Saul Bellow, writes about a man by the name of Eugene Henderson. Eugene Henderson, a very good-looking man, very wealthy man, very well-connected man, a social elite during his time, a man who has all the resources available to him to where there is nothing that he could not eat, literally and metaphorically. At one point in his life, after having his fill of what this dimension offers to him, He finds himself haunted with an inner voice that simply says two words over and over in his head. You know what those two words are? I want, I want, I want. Take a listen to his frustration in his experience of this inner voice. He says this, there was a disturbance in my heart, a voice that spoke there and said, I want, I want, I want. It happened every afternoon. And when I tried to suppress it, it got even stronger. It said only one thing, I want, I want. And I would ask, what do you want? But this is all it would ever tell me. It never said a thing except, I want, I want, I want. At times I would treat it like an ailing child whom you offer rhymes and candy. I would walk it, I would trot it, I would sing to it or read to it. No use. No, no. Through fights and drunkenness and labor, it went right on. In the country, in the city. No purchase, no matter how expensive, would lessen it. But this was no better guess than the others. The demand came louder. I want, I want, I want. What's this man's problem? You know what his problem is? He's hangry. <laughs> Not angry, hangry. You guys know what hangry is? In my household, I know it very well, right? It's when you are very, very angry because you are really, really hungry. And the more hungry you are, the more angrier you get. That's hangry, right? Here's the thing the Bible tells us the reason why the world. Is as dysfunctional and as broken and as dark as it is, is because it's filled with hangry people. Again, the Bible tells us the reason why the world is as dark and as perverted and as messed up as it is is because it's filled with hangry people. Why this world is filled with violence, political corruption, greed, racism, dysfunctional families, and deception. Consider these words from the Apostle James. In the fourth chapter of his book, he writes this, starting in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What's he saying? He's saying the world is messed up because it's filled with people who, who have unfulfilled needs, unfulfilled hunger that is constantly being craving with inside of them. It's filled with people who can no longer tolerate believing the lie that this hunger within can be satisfied in this dimension that we currently live right now. And as a result, it gets violent. It gets bitter. It gets frustrated. You see? Because we're still hungry. This is what the manger says. About you. This is what the manger says about me. This is what the manger says about humanity. We are hangry people who can no longer tolerate that we could find satisfaction in this world. Okay? And this hanger, believe it or not, all comes because of our refusal to tolerate Jesus. When you live in a situation where you will not tolerate Jesus as being the truth, who comes from another dimension, who comes to satisfy your soul, when you don't believe he could be who he claims to be, And which is another way of saying that there is no other dimension out there to satisfy your hunger, Right? you become a hangry person wreaking havoc in this world. Which means what? It means if you want to have a world filled with less hangry people and hence more peace in the world, it begins with you stop being intolerant of Jesus. But therein lies the question, how do we do that? This leads me to my final point, what the manger says about Jesus. Read again with me verse 7 of our passage where it writes, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Here in this verse, we read something absolutely incredible, right? But here's the thing, it's so easy to miss because it's said in passing. It's a statement, Okay, that Matthew makes right after he writes that Mary gave birth and right before he writes Mary laid him in the manger. It's that statement right in the middle that says he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, that is so, so incredible. Why? Because think about what the message of Christmas tells us it tells us that the creator of this world, the all powerful one, God, the Son, right, came into the world and he needed to be wrapped, right? He needed to be covered. God, the creator of all, the powerful of all, right? Came into this world hungry. He was hungering warmth. He was hungering clothing. He was hungering milk. He was hungering nurturing arms. He was hungering someone to care for him. You see? And yet, by coming into the world as a baby, his hunger was not in any way threatening to us the way a hungry person's hunger could be threatening to us. Why? Because when Jesus came into this world, when God came into the world as Jesus, he didn't come here to start a war with those who are against him. He came to bring peace, just like Caesar Augustus. He came to meet the same goal that Augustus tried to do, But here's the thing, the peace Jesus established is vastly different from the peace that Caesar was able to create in two ways. Number one, unlike Caesar, who used violence to create peace, who used violence against his oppressors, right, who tried to oppress him, Jesus allowed violence to be done to him against those who were oppressing him. Why? For the second reason why Jesus is different from Caesar in terms of the peace he brought Because Jesus came to pay the price that his peace required. You see, Caesar Augustus made sure his subjects, the Rome of king, the king of Rome, excuse me, made sure that his subjects would pay for the peace he established. But Jesus, the king of all kings, he paid the cost that it was required for his peace to be established. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says, you and I, we're a bunch of wicked sinners. Simply another way of saying, we are hangry people, right? We are hangry people where we selfishly and cruelly use and take from other people as a futile attempt to satisfy our confused hanger, right? And the gospel goes on to say that God had every right to respond by smiting us down, by punishing us, which was no less than our own death. But instead, God chose to respond a very different way. Out of his merciful love, he came into the world as Jesus so that he could pay on our behalf what was required for the peace that he came to usher in. And he did it through his death. Death that culminated by his bloody offering on the cross. That's what the cross is. The cross is God's payment So that his subjects would not have to make that same payment in order to have that same peace. Jesus provided the payment for the peace at Calvary's Hill. And because this payment was made, there is now true peace for those who recognize that there is a love that is not part of this dimension. A love from another dimension that came down to us so that we can have this love and finally have a satisfaction to a hunger that nothing and no one on earth can satisfy. That is what the Christmas story is about. That is what the manger says about Jesus. The manger tells us that you and I, that we, we are hungry for Jesus. We are hungry for his love. A love that cannot be matched, a love that cannot be overtaken by any other love on this earth. That's what he is saying. This is why Jesus would say such weird and odd statements like in John chapter 6. Listen to what he says there. He says this quote starting in verse 53. So Jesus said again I tell you the truth unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you cannot have eternal life within you but anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise that person on that last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living father who sent me in the same way anyone who feeds on me will live because of me what no you know what he's saying he is saying what the manger says about him we hunger specifically exclusively uniquely and only for the love of jesus right we hunger for that The most important hunger that is in a human being. The most important hunger that informs and gives meaning and purpose to all the other hungers we could have in this life. It's a hunger for Jesus' love. I tell you, once you are satisfied with it, you know what happens? All of a sudden, Jesus not only becomes tolerable, tolerable, he becomes an obsession. And once he becomes an obsession... Which in other situations, when you're obsessed by something or someone, it usually leads to chaos. When you're obsessed with Jesus, it leads to peace within. And once you have peace within, pretty soon, the more people who are like that, now you have a city that is peaceful. Now you have a world that is peaceful. Now you have peace on earth. It begins with what satisfies you. Which is really only one, our Christ and our Savior Jesus. There is a peace that only Jesus can provide, that no other peacemaker can create. I want to end with this very beautiful statement, true statement, that the former French emperor by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte once said about Jesus. He said this Well, then, I will tell you Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this day, millions will die for him. Here's my question, NCF. Is Napoleon talking about you? Have you been satisfied? Has your hunger been alleviated from an other-dimensional love that brings such peace within? that it gushes out out of you, creating peace on earth. I want to end today's message by thinking about some next steps for you to consider. First, if you're here investigating the Christian faith, and today's message really resonated with you to where you feel you're ready to make Jesus the Lord of your life and recognize Him that is who He is, then take this time to pray and go to Him and ask God to be in your life. And come talk to me, talk to Pastor James. We would love to help you get started on this new journey known as your walk with God. Number 2 this is to you the rest of you NCF I ask this question am i ask yourself at some point this week am i intolerant of Jesus now i know that kind of sounds offensive for me as your pastor to tell you to do cuz assuming that you consider yourself as a christian you're like of course i'm not intolerant of Jesus but let's ask some real honest diagnostic questions such as do i find myself feeling a lack of hunger for Jesus in my life <laughs> do i find other things other Goals, other dreams, more satisfying to me than the idea of knowing more of my master? Or number two, do I live a majority of my life as a hangry person? Am I short-tempered? Am I bitter? Am I disenfranchised? Do I feel entitled more and more? If you answered yes to either of these two questions, in spite of what you consciously say with your mouth, your answers are subconsciously revealing what's within you, really, really. You're not tolerant of Jesus at all. I think it's time for you to repent and ask God for forgiveness, like I have to do, constantly. Finally, number three, take some time brainstorming with your Oikos group members on how you can grow in your hunger for God. Some suggestions. Partner with an Oikos group member and fast. Fast. Don't give in to your hunger, whether it's with literal food, maybe social media, stop posting so much on Instagram or Facebook. Right? Use that time praying together for a fresh experience of God's merciful love. Memorize Psalm 42, right? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. You know that one, right? Take some time. Memorize it. And every day for 10, 15 minutes, just reflect on it on your day to work as you trek into the city, as you hang out with friends who make more money than you and have nicer, flashier things. Memorize and meditate. And finally, number three, maybe this holiday season while you have off from school or work, Read John Piper's A Hunger for God. What a great book. Really captures the essence of what today's message is about. Are you going to accept what the manger says about your Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, I have but one desire, and that is for myself and for these people, we would find deep awareness and deep recognition. That we are truly hunger, hungry for you. And really this hunger trickles down to every other hunger that we struggle with in this life. But Lord, we have been misguided. We have misinterpreted. We have misunderstood that these earthly hungers are supposed to arouse in us a hunger for you. But yet, for so often, we go on a detour with our earthly hungers. And we think what is penultimate is truly ultimate. Lord, forgive us of that mistake and realign our hearts to the proper direction again. Help us to see you for who you are, Jesus, the baby in the manger, the true food that gives true life and true peace, thereby freeing us from any anger that would cause such havoc, but instead, peace within that would bring nothing but joy and festive peace. God, help us to live this out, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.